Hello and welcome everybody to another edition of Africa is a Country Talk, which is the weekly talk and interview show every Tuesday brought to you by Africa is a Country, streaming live at 6 p.m. if you're in Johannesburg, 7 p.m. if you're in Nairobi, or 12 p.m. if you are in New York. My name is William Shockey, and I'm coming to you live from Johannesburg. And unfortunately, today it's just going to be me. Um, if you're a fan of my co-host, Sean Jacobs, now is the time for you to tune out because Sean is not going to be joining us. I'm very sad. I feel very lonely. And Sean can't make it because he's currently in transit on his way to Cape Town, actually. Um, a lot of people don't know this, but Sean is actually a representative of the U.S. government. And he's headed to Cape Town to test the efficacy of the vaccines against the Delta variant. Um, I'm kidding. That's that's a joke, a bad one. Uh, Sean's actually from Cape Town, born and bred, uh, which is something people don't know anyway. So he's coming back to the motherland, and I'm very keen to have him in the same time zone. So from next week, we'll be doing the show from the same time zone. Hopefully, we'll get to do it together, but we'll see if that can come into the works, fingers crossed. Uh, but for now, it's just going to be me and our wonderful producer, Antoinette Engel, who is helping us produce the show from Cape Town, where Sean will be soon. So if you missed last week's episode, as always, a reminder to go check that out. We had Grief Chelwa speak to us about the legacy of Zambia's founding president, Kenneth Kaunda. And we also had Herman Wasserman speak to us about media disinformation and the rise of fake news on the continent. And today's show is a very exciting one. We're going to be talking to some of Africa's a country's fellows. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Africa's a country began a fellowship last year with 10 fellows who've been producing their own original work. A lot of that has been published over the last year. And today we're very excited to have two of those fellows on the show, Yulendri Apasami, as well as Liam Brickhill. But before we get to them, there's a lot happening in the news at the moment. Uh, there's things going on in Ethiopia with Tigrayan rebels capturing the regional capital. The, the king of Eswatini has fled. There's a Euro round of 16 game going on right now between England and Germany. And according to Africa's a country's algorithm, which is based on how many African diaspora players each team has, you should be rooting for England. Um, so there's lots going on. But very big news coming out of South Africa today is that the Constitutional Court, which is the apex court of the country, has found former President Jacob Zuma guilty of contempt of court. And they've sentenced him to a 15-month unsuspended sentence. And he has until the weekend to present himself to the South African police service, which is like, you know, massive news uh, in South Africa. And... We just thought it would be good to get someone to help us unpack exactly what this all means. And we're very thrilled to have on the show Dan Mafora, who is a contributor to Africa as a Country. He also works as a researcher for the Council of the Advancement of the South African Constitution. He runs his own Substack blog. He is a co-host of the podcast, Just Us Under the Tree. So Dan is a very prolific man. So we're very excited to have him on the show. And for all of you who don't know, Dan wrote an article for us a few months ago and it was called The Strong Man's Vision of Democracy. And so Dan, maybe uh, a, a question to start 
is the strong man still strong or is he now a little bit weak? What do you think this means for uh, him? Um, that's a very good question. Uh, we'll see after this weekend uh, whether or not he's still strong. But um, if anything, today's uh, judgment was a huge blow uh, because I don't think a lot of us, I don't know what we were expecting, but we didn't expect um, the court to be as strong or to come out as strong as it did. Um, so certainly not today, not as strong today. So just give a bit of brief background for our viewers. What led up to this finding of contempt was his refusal to testify at the Zondo commission into state capture. He was supposed to testify. Uh, he didn't want to do that. Um, and why was he so resistant to appearing at this commission? Yeah. So um, there's two things. Here. One is that this is about his defiance of a court order, right? So in the first instance, um, I think in December last year, the commission went to court because he had refused to uh, comply with the, with uh, summons that it had issued. So they went to court to get an order compelling him to come uh, to testify. And then they got that order in um, January of this year. And he then... Um, uh, well, the order itself set a, a, a time frame for him to comply with it. Um, a fresh uh, round of summons was issued, and then he 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 failed to comply with that. So the commission now went back and said, "Look, this guy is in contempt, um, and we are not we we we're not seeking an an order that would you know compel him to come testify. We want uh, a, a sentence of imprisonment." Which is something very unusual, um, at least for 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 um, for it to come directly to the court, right? So you find contempt uh, applications in lower courts and the high court and stuff. Um, so this was the first time I think the the court had to deal with a direct, direct, direct application for for um, an order of contempt, and yeah, they got it today, and the court. Uh, sentenced him to 15 months in jail, uh, prison, uh, and suspended. And it's interesting, you mentioned that this is something that is unusual for courts of this level to do. A lot of what explains just how, let's say, I guess, punitive the court was in its finding is that this case was not only about this isolated finding by Zuma, but sort of relates to this long-standing effort he's initiated to try and test just how yeah. robust South Africa's judiciary are, is. He's, as you've wrote so eloquently in that article, he's gone to great lengths to question the legitimacy mm -hmm. of the judiciary. And so this was as much uh, a fight for the integrity of the judiciary as it was coming to the right conclusion about what should happen following his defiance of this uh, summons. Yeah, so I definitely think it was uh, a rebuke um, of the kind of attacks that he has leveled on on the court and well, the, the judiciary in in general. Um, because it, when you read the judgment, the, the court says, "Look, this, he didn't even bother to come and defend himself. Right? He didn't even bother to come and explain uh, why he didn't com uh, comply with the order. Um, but what he did do." 
was make public statements, um, issue, you know, uh, write letters and uh, attack people, impugn people's reputations and, co uh, and, um, and conduct as, as unlawful, unconstitutional, as, um, as, as, as vindictive and stuff. And the court said, all of this is damaging to the courts because you erode public trust in our ability to do what the constitution requires, which is to you know, administer justice. And for that reason, and for the reason that um, you have continuously uh, kind of uh, failed to account for the things that you have done, uh, we find you guilty of contempt. And the only way that we, and, and the court says quite blatantly that you know, they're making an example out of him. And uh, in that way, um, vindicate their position um, in a way that I think uh, is a great show of strength, um, at least uh, by, the, by the highest court in the land, yeah. And what does one say to some people who might be worried that on the one hand, there is this need for the courts to make an example of Zuma to sort of show a clear stand that intimidation, attacks and threats to the judiciary aren't gonna be tolerated. But at the same time in doing so, somewhat overstepping the function of a court and politicizing the function of a court. Do you think that's something that people could say legitimately or at this point, was it necessary? I mean, I don't think it's something that um, people can say legitimately. When you look at um, Zuma's history in the courts, it has evolved, right? So from the time when he was first charged with corruption um, and then those charges were dropped and then the fight about the dropping of those charges, his, his strategy has evolved every single time. But now that he you know, is out of political capital, is out in the cold, he has um, effectively said he he effectively said that, that he is going to operate out of outside of the system, right? So his his um, strategy is to attack judges, to attack the courts, and say that he's being um, they are part of a, a, a political conspiracy, blah 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 blah, without any kind of um, any kind of, 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 of basis, factual or otherwise, for doing so. And so the court even says that, um, look, we have, we have tried so hard to get, get Mr. Zuma to come to court to explain to us why he has done what he has done. And they go, they even go, went to the extent of inviting him to say, if we find you guilty of contempt, um, what would the appropriate sanction be, right? He didn't even bother to do that. So they say, we can't be accused of not being fair when we have deliberately gone out of our way to say, please come, please come and talk to us um, and you know, let, 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 let us know how to deal with this. I think that, of course, there's politics around this and, and that's going to uh, play itself out and it's going to... Um, influence how this decision is seen or received but ultimately it is um, a question of law um, and it is a question that 
he chose not to answer. It's a, uh, a process that he chose not to participate in. So at the end of the day, that is a risk that he took. Um, and of course, there's lots of other things that we can talk about, about the judgment itself. Um, but what is clear is that it can't be impugned on the basis that, you know, it's some sort of orchestrated political campaign against him. And in terms of his claim that this is an orchestrated political campaign, Zuma exemplifies a political tendency in South Africa that is growing increasingly frustrated with the judiciary. They're associated with factions of the ruling party, the African National Congress, which is deeply embedded in networks of patronage, corruption, and so on. And so although this is the boldest anyone has been in terms of testing the courts, this doesn't feel like it's going to be the end of politicians testing the courts. So what are the political implications of this? I mean, I'm seeing that there's, there's, there's protests in, in defense of Zuma being planned right. for tomorrow at the constitutional court. Uh, a lot of people are now looking at him as some kind of, of martyr for a good cause. Yeah. Um, <laughs> do you think they're gonna be, do you think a lot of these players are gonna be intent on on acting on on their on their sense of, of grievance and injury and defiance? Yeah. Or is it something that will go away? Look, I think the biggest test is going to be for the ANC government, right? Um, the court singles out the Minister of uh, Police, the National Commissioner and the Station Commander um, at Nganja to say if Mr. Zuma does not present himself to the police station after five days, you have to arrest him and get him to um, a correctional center. And so whether there's the political will to do that um, will be the biggest test. And it will also mean uh, or will also expose whether or not the executive is actually committed to, you know, um, implementing court orders or whether it's just another platitude that they you know, they say. And so that's going to be the immediate challenge, which I think should give um, Ramaphosa, Begitele and the others a few uh, sleep, sleepless nights in the days ahead. Uh, but I mean, it was always going to be a, a situation where he martyrs himself, right? He becomes the martyr to say, oh no, he's being uh, persecuted. He's being um, unfairly treated and, and, and. And that has uh, always been the case, even in the presence of just like an exhausting or an exhaustive list of just like chances at, you know, court processes, at like getting off on charges, not answering, just evading any kind of accountability, uh, but that's just the, the, the kind of uh, charismatic leader that he is, that nothing uh, that's empirical in, in any kind of way will be able to sway um, the views of, 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 of his supporters. And so that for me isn't much of a challenge because all, I mean, they could protest, they could have rallies and all these things, that's not gonna change the judgment. Um, but what is, left now is for the implementation of the order and uh, the, the, the 
the um, consequences that flow from that. So at worst, what we're looking at is probably um, a decisive split in the ANC uh, over how uh, it's handled. Um, but beyond that, I think any any other um, any other apprehension about you know the, the strength of the court and 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 or, or the judiciary uh, as a whole um, it would be overstated at this point. Last question: uh, Do you think Zuma is going to hand himself over at the weekend, or is he going <laughs> to? <laughs> um, yeah, this weekend is going to be very interesting. What I, I don't think he will, um, but he has said he would rather go to jail than cooperate with the State Capture Commission. He's got his wish now. <laughs> uh, I don't expect him to live up to his word, but you never know. It, it might actually just make him more of a martyr if he you know, just pitches up and says, I'm here to accept my punishment and I'm ready to start serving my sentence. Uh, but I do think there will be a bit of tension this weekend. Um, of course, uh, you've heard about the MK veterans um, setting up perimeters around uh, uh, his, his, his property and stuff like that. And so if an order is given that he, I mean, there is an, an existing order for his arrest after the, the five days. Um, but I think there might be a bit of a, 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 a kerfuffle, let's say, uh, <laughs> between those people and, 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 and the police. Yeah. Well, Dan, we, we look forward to your live tweeting of what goes down over the weekend. Uh, we know you'll have some spicy takes and funny yeah, observations. <laughs> so thank you so much for, for coming on, Dan, and looking forward to whatever pieces you write in the future on this. Uh, and a reminder to everyone to like and subscribe to Africa as a Country. Follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, and on Instagram. Please, please, please also subscribe to our Patreon where you can access the entire archive of Africa as a Country Talk uh, and use it as a way to support our work in general. So to get on with our program for today, as we mentioned at the beginning, we're going to be talking to Africa as a Country's inaugural fellows, well, at least some of them, and to remind you of what that is about, uh, the fellowship program began last year and the purpose of it was to support the production of original work and a new content and knowledge on African related topics that are under-recognized and undercovered in the traditional media, new media and other public forums. It particularly seeks to amplify voices and perspectives from the left that addresses major political, social, and economic issues affecting Africans in ways that are original, accessible, and engaging to a variety of audiences. And we thought it would be an especially opportune time to bring on some fellows to the program, considering the fact that a few weeks ago we had Anakwa Dwamina and Bhakti Sringapore, and we were talking about how do we recreate this lively intellectual network and culture on the continent that is able to promote new research, new theory, and new writing. And hopefully the fellowship is, is one step towards doing that. So I'm very happy to bring on to the show a fellow, uh, Yulendri Apasami, who is a freelance writer and editor from South Africa. She's based in Johannesburg and studied at the university, appropriately known as Rhodes, as well as Wits University, 
where she obtained her MA in political studies. And when she's not writing or editing words, she's thinking about how to do it better, which is, you know, my struggle all the time as well. So Yulandri, thank you very much for coming onto the program. Um, so far for the fellowship, you've produced one essay and it's a really breathtaking essay on the intersection of indentured labor in South Africa, the class identities of South Africa's Indian community and the reproduction of, of patriarchal violence amidst all of that. And it began as I think your MA thesis. So maybe a good place to start is why this topic? Why were you drawn to it? I mean, well, I kind of just followed the silences in my family, really. It started at home and I would find that when it came to family history or how are we here or why are we here, um, there would be certain silences and a kind of um, a need for me to just accept that this is how things are now. And I, I didn't want to accept that. I knew there was um, something else. There was another story. And when I was doing my master's um, at WITS is where I actually really kind of found a lot of work and research about indenture um, as it was practiced in South Africa. But, you know, it was a colonial labor system. So it was practiced across um, British colonies all over the world. And the more reading really that I did on indenture, the more things started to make sense and more those silences were filled up with a lot of narratives and stories and events. Um, that I find really valuable. And yeah, I'm really glad that it's also resonating with other people. I think it's, it's really striking that you've you framed your foray into this as coming by following the silences. And, you know, I think for a lot of people, the history of how Indians ended up in South Africa is silenced insofar as it's not really known, it's not really ingrained in public consciousness, and most people don't really know how it happens, a kind of almost mythical understanding that uh, Indian South Africans just appeared um, and weren't brought here by force and compulsion. So could you maybe just briefly give us a breakdown of that history of indenture and basically being brought on here as a, as a pliant or expected to be a, a, a pliant and exploited labor force? Um, okay, uh, yeah, so um, the system of indenture was um, uh, instituted by uh, Britain to replace um, tran the transatlantic slave trade. And so it was seen to be a more humane way to get cheap labor to work in plantations. So sugar plantations, dairy farms, um, on railways, um, indigo farming, there was like a whole host of kind of agricultural and industrial pursuits that indentured laborers um, worked on. And so in South Africa, um, the first indentured laborers arrived in 1860 um, at Port Natal. Um, although that wasn't the first arrival of people from South Asia to Africa. I mean, the first kind of migration happened during um, the times of slavery happening in um, Cape Town and in Western Cape. And so indenture was a kind of second and bigger wave um, of, of people from South Asia coming. 
uh, to South Africa and it was a really, it was meant to be a more humane labor system, but that obviously wasn't the case. Um, and, you know, rates of suicide were extremely high amongst the indentured population. And there were extreme uh, kind of gender imbalances in terms of who was boarding the ships and also who survived um, the, the crossing from um, India. So all of those things kind of led to a system where this new kind of racial category was created in um, South Africa of if you're not black or white or colored, now you, you're Asian. So there were the indentured laborers and that migration led to that. And that also led to a whole bunch of you know, other things that apartheid kind of built on. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the long and short of indenture. And you mentioned those gender imbalances uh, in the article you speak about uh, a woman who you encountered in your temple and traced the history of those gender imbalances across different generations of of, of Indian uh, women in South Africa. How how were those gender imbalances sort of um, reproduced by the colonial uh, administration? And how, yeah, what, how do those, because I mean, what I, what you mentioned in your essay, which I thought was, was really interesting was that when waves of indentured laborers were brought onto, onto the continent, one of the tactics that the colonial administration deployed was ensuring that they had no relations of kinship or community coming with them so that they could be completely uprooted and could be weak insofar as lacking uh, adequate networks of support. So do you think that was a mechanism through which the gender imbalance was, was strengthened? And what were other mechanisms that the colonial administration uh, deployed to try and, and maintain it? I think I'm okay. Um, yeah, that gender imbalance was pretty kind of foundational in a lot of things, one of them being um, kind of family violence and gender-based violence within South African Indian communities. But the colonial administration at that point really wanted to make sure there was no sense of rootedness for the labor for the laborers. And so having a family being able to reproduce you know, was part of that. Um, and so there definitely is a kind of reproductive justice element to um, the kinds of cruelties that the indentured laborers had to um, kind of endure. And another thing with that gender imbalance is that there was a lot of kind of um, transactional relationships, a lot of uh, polyamorous, um, poly setups, um, a lot of sex work happening as well. And so there was definitely kind of constructions of um, indentured womanhood that were premised on um, being fallen women, on being, you know, sexually promiscuous, on being deserving of any violence that was needed to make sure she wasn't transgressing um, her, her husband or a plantation master or a colonial official. And there's so many um, archival um, kind of... Uh, uh, recordings and whatnot that show how women fought for the right to divorce um, their partners, for example, because a lot of them got married on the ships um, 
And so when they got here, they were already paired up. And so um, when abuse started happening in those partnerships, there was no way for them to kind of legally get out of that or seek any protection. Um, so that gender imbalance was pretty foundational in kind of the constructions of womanhood as well as family. Um, and at some point, I think during the RAG Commission, um, it, it was kind of a weird collusion between, not weird, but it was a collusion between indentured Indian men and colonial officials to kind of retranscribe these Victorian family values into indentured women um, to make sure that they knew that they were not the head of the household, they did not have agency and they needed to rely on men. And that was kind of legislated through marriage and divorce and kinship kind of regulations at that point. And these resistances that you mentioned, how did women resist? They fought for the right for divorce. Some women tried to to leave their husbands. What was available to women as far as a way to counter this in the face of so many constraints? Yeah, so there were quite a few ways. Um, again, you have to kind of read the silences and read kind of um, broader than South Africa in a sense, because I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot more documentation of the indentured experience from the Caribbean, from Fiji. And so I kind of use that to triangulate what um, indentured women in South Africa may have possibly been doing. Um, and so part of that was just like, being a nuisance. So they would get um, arrested for public indecency or kind of, they would do kind of petty things to get locked up so that they would not be um, uh, at home or in the compound with abusive partners or husbands. Um, they would also, they would rather spend time in, in a jail than that. Uh, they, yeah, petitioning for divorce, protesting and, the person I mentioned in the story when I was interviewing her for my MA, um, she she mentioned the notion of self-made care because she had never um, accessed any social welfare or any therapy or any kind of mental health um, professional for the abusive um, marriage that she was in. And she referred to what she had done to protect herself and her children, uh, she relied on herself. It was self-made care. And I think that is a huge part of the ways in which um, descendants of indenture also make do with instances of abuse and instances of, of violence. Yeah, because I mean, speaking of descendants, uh, it goes without saying that South Africa is patriarchal problem is a massive one. We have the highest rate of gender-based violence in the world. And you quote Pumla Dineotola, who's an eminent scholar on all of this. And she speaks about how the silences are integral to maintaining uh, rape culture in the country because the instances of gender-based violence are still treated with shame and fear and embarrassment. And people tend to react with shock and outrage at hearing upon hearing of one rather than the more sort of grim reality that this is something that we are we have normalized because it's so dominant in our lives so 
when thinking about the strategy of 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 resilience that you've just described, which is one primarily of self-reliance, do you think that's something that's carried through till today? And is the community getting closer to at least breaking the silences or are the silences being broken in, in ways perhaps which are, are not so obvious? Um, well, I think there's many ways, there's many orientations to that. And um, I'm definitely not a spokesperson for the community in any way, but um, I think that just looking at the response to the work I've been um, writing about gender-based violence, sexual violence, abuse within South African Indian communities, there is such a large um, space and group of people who are genuinely working on dismantling things, on providing support, on, you know, speaking at temple gatherings, on working at domestic violence, um, you know, phone lines and at shelters. So I don't think that um, self-made um, kind of care or self-reliance is, is the only mode anymore, but it definitely is, um, I don't want to say inherent, but it's definitely part of that story um, of, of indentureship. I mean, self-reliance was a huge part of that experience in and of itself beyond, um, you know, healing or recovering from gender-based violence. So yeah, I think there's a lot of different ways in which people are trying to creatively and imaginatively work through this. Some of it is through the state, but a lot of it is also private. Like it's, you know, it's just individuals and communities who want to do something different. Mm. And yeah, it's, it's important to say that, you know, what you describe in your, in your essays, not just particular to the Indian community. I think it's characteristic of pretty much every community in South Africa that there's that culture of shame and and silence and suppressing any talk and discussion of of gender-based violence and i mean i wonder if in a country like this one is there do you notice i mean i certainly notice one but a kind of generational clash between the sort of older tradition of or older strategy of of resistance i guess which kind of emphasizes an endurance and and developing uh, the capacity as 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 a woman to to be strong, I suppose, um, and those kinds of narratives around strength and resilience and so on, and younger generations which are calling it out, which are saying, "Well, these things shouldn't be shouldn't be tolerated. These things should be broken open and spoken about uh, without fear." Uh, and in your experience, especially. The woman that we've been talking about when you interviewed her did some of that kind of generational tension appear or or not so much yeah so um i mean my research was really with temple aunties so these were women who were 50 60 plus um the, and there was definitely a generational um, kind of divide when it came to talking about such things. Like if I speak to my cousins, I would get a different viewpoint than, you know, the women I was speaking to when I was doing my research. Um, and I do think, yeah, there definitely is a, a kind of shift and a generational 
difference in approaches to understanding abuse, understanding that abuse isn't just someone hitting you, it can be a variety of different things. Um, but I think generally there still is, a, at least in South African Indian communities, a tendency to reflect on the fact that our ancestors, our indentured ancestors endured so much and so we need to endure that too. They worked so hard for our lives to be better. Um, and obviously that doesn't characterize everybody, but it, I think even with a younger generation, um, that's the kind of socialization you have to start unlearning and realizing for yourself what is right and what is wrong. And yeah, I mean, it's 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 fascinating. I think the the work that you're doing, and I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing what comes from it. I mean, you've you've shared some some zines with us, which are more reflections on the history of the South African Indian community. Uh, one of them is about this famous cookbook called uh, Indian Delights, uh, which I think was written by a woman by the name of Zuleika Myatt and uh, a few others uh, who you'll tell us about in a moment. But for example, Indian Delights, as far as appearance is concerned, it looks like an ordinary cookbook, but the sort of richness of the cookbook, what it represents um, as far as the story of, of Indian womanhood in the country is, is far more substantive and, and deeper. Uh, could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so um, this uh, essay on Indian delights um, was actually published in Kajal magazine, which is a kind of global South Asian diaspora focused um, magazine. And I, in nearly every single South African Indian household I've been into, there is a tatty, you know, oil splattered um, uh, copy of Indian Delights. And I'm just so fascinated that we all share this cultural product in some way. And also how when other people would think of South African Indians, one of the first things, even in a Google search, is Durban curry. And so there is this weird um, kind of interplay of what cuisine and food also has to represent about a culture and identity. And the more I read it and the actual book as well as um, kind of readings and research done on the book, the more I realized it was actually a product of hybridity. It really showcased um, how different cuisines and ingredients and different locations influenced um, th that specific taste of a Durban curry or chops chutney. You know, it wasn't, um, it's not something that you would necessarily find in India, for example. It's not just something transplanted. There's a level of creolization in the cuisine. Um, and so my piece was really about looking at that and understanding how that also reflected the kind of 60s apartheid um, Indian woman and how she was locating herself in all of this. And it was through the kitchen and it was through domestic spaces. Um, and also, I mean, the work of the Women's Cultural Group who um, Zuleika Mayat is one of the founding members of, and she edited um, Indian Delights. Their work has also just been amazing. And it's one of those things where uh, you might overlook the fact that they were activists 
because they are putting on fashion shows and selling samosas at a town hall. But actually, a lot of the um, money that was made went into bursaries for black and brown children in KZN. And they were non-racial at a time where it was very dicey to be non-racial openly. And so, yeah, I just found their work really fascinating um, and useful to think through now, like in a post-apartheid setting. Why do you think it's useful to think of, of their work in a, in a post-apartheid setting? I mean, looking at your other zines, it uh, talks about, you know, the Indian diaspora. There's a little card that says happy Indian uh, arrival day. And what I find very illuminating about your work is this reminder, as you were saying just now, that Indian identity in South Africa is a Creole identity. I think people sort of think of Indian identity as constituting uh, a national group in a way, as being a diaspora community. There are Indians who will someday return to the nation of, of India, whereas for Indians, their identity is constructed here. It's constructed at the intersection of what was brought along as well as what was imposed insofar as you were saying earlier that they were newly racialized as Asian when, when they came here. At some stage they were Asiatic, then they became um, Indian. So, I mean, especially in a country like, in South Africa right now, I think there's there's a lot of hyper-racialized polarization, uh, the rise of anti-Indian racism peddled by South African, by some populist parties in South Africa, like uh, the economic freedom fighters, that's sort of kind of, I guess, tolerated. Um, and Indians are looked at as a, as a almost uh, a pseudo settler community, or at least they're, they're looked at as foreign. So um, yeah, how do you think this, this work kind of, uh, why, yeah, why is it important in a post-apartheid identity uh, South Africa? Um, well, firstly, my next essay addresses a lot of these, <laughs> a lot of these questions. Um, so there you'll find the in-depth answer. But um, the short answer is just that it's a mess. Like it really is. Like a lot of the rhetoric I see that um, the British colon, like you know, documented in the archives from um, the British, is exactly the same rhetoric that has been translated and transmuted into different languages and said by different people. But that same kind of discourse of alienness or foreignness is entirely there. And it really elides so many differences, especially when it comes to class within the South African Indian community, and as well as understanding that there were different waves of migration, which led to different economic situations, which led to different uh, actual locations of people. So for example, a lot of the population in KZN do come from indentured backgrounds because of, I think, the Glenn Gray Act, which uh, made it so that descendants of indenture couldn't really leave the borders of KZN and traveling to anywhere else was really difficult. And so I think through the work I'm doing, I really want to highlight the heterogeneity within the community to be like, there's actually so much happening here. And I think a lot of 
when I first started looking into indenture and speaking to friends or colleagues about it, a lot of the feedback I would get is that the South African Indian community is really insular, it's really secretive. Um, and I don't, I think they are right to a certain extent. There is definitely a lot of kind of keeping to ourselves or um, not necessarily being as, uh, you know, clear communicative about what Hinduism is or why we off on a certain day or why are we fasting, for example. But that's where the work of, you know, people like me, writers and artists need to come in to be like, this is what is actually happening because in in the vacuum of that insularity that's where you get a lot of anti-indian racism and kind of racial and colonial stereotyping about what this population group is because it just sees it as a fixed um identity as a greedy shopkeeper um as a gupta and it's yeah it's really hurtful you know when you think that for example my family has been here for four to five generations. And we don't know India as a homeland. In fact, when my my grandparents went to India in the 60s, they hated it. And people in India said, oh, you're African, you have such dark skin, like, oh, what, like, and they, there was actually conflict and tension there. So there is nowhere else for us to go. You know, it's not like there's a mythical place in which we, we reside, we reside here. Yolandre, uh, thank you so much for for all of that, and we really look forward to your next essay. I think it's gonna, yeah, I, I think it sounds fantastic, and I think this is important work, and we look forward to seeing what else you produce in terms of demystifying uh, this, the perceived homogeneity of South Africa's Indian community, and really appreciate you coming on today. Thank you. Thank you so much to Yolandri and as always do check out her work which is on the site and as well as the work produced by all of the other fellows and we're going to be talking to another fellow right now, Liam Brickhill, who is a Zimbabwean born and based writer and sports journalist as well as filmmaker. I believe Liam has currently uh, recently made an experimental film. So, I mean, Liam, thank you so much for, for coming onto the program to talk about your work. And I guess one place that seems natural to start is we were just talking to Landry about South African Indian identity. And it's interesting now talking to you uh, because you are a white Zimbabwean. And I can imagine that is a, a very complex identity to navigate. And how do you navigate that identity? if I could start with a very kind of broad but personal question. No, that's, that's, that's a great place to start. Um, uh, yeah, good question. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a tricky one. And, and there, it, I guess I have to go back to um, my childhood um, and, you know, go back to the beginning and tell you that, um, I, my my family and 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 my uh, myself. Uh, where to start? Where to start? <laughs> um, <laughs> Sorry for putting you in this position. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
No, no. I, even, even I, where what I really want to say is, even as a white Zimbabwean, I'm I'm not your normal white Zimbabwean, if I can put it that way. Um, so, so my approach to to identity and and whiteness in Zimbabwe is, is informed by that. Um, my family on my dad's side and my mom's side um, came from uh, kind of pro progressive backgrounds. Uh, my mom's parents were trade unionists in South Africa. Um, my mom was you know, arrested um, and had to leave the country in the 70s. And on my dad's side, um, my father and my uncle both joined the libera liberation struggle in, in Rhodesia and, and fought for Zipra. Um, so this is the household I was born into. Um, and yeah, I, I so that's, that, that's my milieu. Um, so I, as, as a kid, I didn't know there was anything uh, strange about the way I was brought up, but I wasn't brought up necessarily in the white community, to put it that way. I was, I was just brought up uh, among people who, many of whom didn't look like me. Um, and it's only as I've gotten older and, um, you know, once, once I kind of left junior school, went to high school, um, and, and started to realize, um, a bit more of, of Zimbabwe's history, a bit more of my country's history that, that I realized I had been raised in a way that not many white people in Zimbabwe were raised. Um, so that's 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 kind of my 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 ground my approach to to my identity in Zimbabwe, and and in terms of like um, you know the, the wider white community that I guess that kind of locates me as as a bit of an outsider. Um, but that's that's not to say. I mean, that's that's not that's not necessarily the worst position to to be in uh, when when thinking about things like this or thinking about something like cricket, which has been, which which was um, so integral to the production of, of white identity in Rhodesia, um, sports sports in general, n not just cricket. Um, yeah, I, I I hope that that. That answers some of your questions. Well, that's, a, that's a great answer. And okay. it, it brings us to, to the topic of specialty uh, that brings you here, which is about sport and cricket in, in Zimbabwe. It's interesting you speak of cricket as being crucial to the reproduction of whiteness in Zimbabwe. In many ways, that's the case here in South Africa, especially the more traditional, I guess, English sports, cricket being one, rugby being the other, um, how, how did you get drawn, not just into cricket, but into Trevor Madondo, who is a black cricketer? You've, you wrote the superb essay for, for Africa as a Country, The Life and Times of, of Trevor Madondo. What was it about his story that enticed you? Um, well, perhaps if I can start by um, telling you how I got into cricket itself. For that as well, I, I must thank my, my parents and especially my father who introduced me to the game. Um, and further to that, um, really sparked my own education in what cricket could be. One of the first cricket books my, my parents ever got me was um, CLR James' Beyond the Boundary. Um, so that was, uh, that was and remains my... Um, uh, one of my aspirations, my, I, I mean, I don't want to co compare myself to CLI James in any way, but it's certainly something to aspire to the way he wrote about cricket, the way um, CLI James understood cricket as, as part of um, 
history and society, um, and also um, as a mode of, of app apprehending these things and apprehending the lives of, of people within within the sport, within the system. Um, and, and, and then to go to, to, to Trevor's story, um, the, uh, Trevor Madondo is, is someone who um, may, most people, all people who, who are Zimbabwean and, and have been following cricket for any amount of time will have known of Trevor and uh, will have known of his story. Um, I certainly knew of the Trevor Madondo story growing up. Um, but I, I always felt that um, there was that his story had not had not fully been been told. That um, Trevor Madonda was known as this kind, somewhat wild uh, character, a talented cricketer who never made um, uh, the most of his talent and unfortunately died young. Um, um, but there's really so much. So much more to it than that. There's a, there's a complex human being there, um, with with his own story, um, uh, who lived through some amazing times in his country's history, some rapid changes, um, and was a a forerunner of of, of many things. Um, so these uh, this this grounding in the work of 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 C L R James and understanding cricket as not just a sport. Um, as as an art, but also as a dramatic spectacle, as part of the institutions of society, um, as part of the fabric of society, um, all these things kind of come together in Trevor's story. Um, one of my main goals in writing that story is was to um, to really allow that that complexity to shine through, um, to not make it about not make Trevor an, an example of something or, um, you know, to, to allow him to, to his, his story to, to speak for itself, the good, the bad, you know, the complicated, the successes, the, the challenges. Um, and, and as part of, as part of telling that story to also to be able to tell a story about my country um, and Trevor's country and, and, um, and the times that he lived in and, um, and, and and what he achieved outside of cricket. Yeah, I mean, there's there's so much to, to unpack there. I, I always kick myself that I haven't read uh, CLR James's book. Uh, another it's never friend, too late. It's never too late, indeed. I mean, another <laughs> friend, a friend recommended it to me uh, recently as a way to try and seduce me into loving the sport. I I have a long-standing gripe against cricket purely because. Uh, I'm when I began high school, I moved from a primary school where football was a dominant sport, went to a high school where cricket and rugby were dominant sports and just felt like I, I had to resist uh, being assimilated into that culture. But I suppose what you said there about using Madondo's story and crickets to tell the story of Zimbabwe, what would you... what? What does cricket mean in Zimbabwe? We've already answered some of that in terms of how it's a way of reproducing whiteness. Um, but what else does it mean in Zimbabwe? At least in South Africa, sport is supposed to, as, as everywhere, sport is this great unifier. And when this, this nation was, was in its birth pangs, uh, before it was in its birth pangs, when it was a different nation and altogether, 
what did cricket mean and how does how can we understand Zimbabwe through cricket? Well, you know, I guess the, the, the Zimbabwean cricket story, part of it is, is, is where we have come from in the past. Um, and it's, it's important to um, acknowledge that and um, to understand the past. Um, but, but at the same time, you know, the, the, the past is fixed, but the, the present and the future are, are in our hands. Um, so that's, that's really what interests me. Cricket obviously has a long history in, um, in Zimbabwe um, and in, in, in Rhodesia. Um, uh, that's, that's not so much what's, what, what interests me. What interests me is, is, is uh, what cricket is doing now in, in, in that society and where cricket now is in Zimbabwe. Um, we mentioned earlier um, sport uh, and cricket in Zimbabwe as a, as a way of um, reproducing forms of identity and, and, and white identity. And even, even that white identity doesn't mean the same thing now as it did 40 years ago, 20 years ago. Um, so, so when we, we talk of, of cricket in Zimbabwe, and, and you mentioned South Africa as well, I think, um, I'm not sure if this is controversial to say so, but I think in many ways, Zimbabwean cricket is, um, is ahead of South African cricket. Um, in terms of the way that the game has has developed and um, uh, become a, a, a part a, a national sport and a sport for everyone, these these changes are coming to South Africa. But even within the South African team, you might have players of different colours coming into the team now. But overwhelmingly, the South African squad comes from elite schools. Um, uh, in, the, in, the, in, in South Africa. In Zimbabwe, that's not the case. Um, sure, there are the, those schools also exist in Zimbabwe, but cricket has moved out of those boundaries there. Um, the, the, the strongest cricket, cricketing schools in Zimbabwe are not necessarily the richest schools. Um, and, and cricket's audience, cr cricket's audience and cricket's people in Zimbabwe are not what they once were. I've been going to Harare Sports Club now to watch cricket for uh, almost 30 years. Um, and it's, you know, through, throughout that time period, cricket has, has changed. It has been um, adapted. It has been contested. It has been appropriated um, in a good way um, into, into something quite different. So when we when we talk of what cricket means in Zimbabwe, I, I really try not to get too too caught up in um, cricket's colonial past. Although, yeah, again, I say we, you know we have to acknowledge that that's that, that is is part of it, but not to get to get stuck in it because it's so much more dynamic than that. And cricket has come to mean so much more to so many other people. Um, even the, the space of cricket itself, the cricket grounds, I mentioned that I'd been going to Harare Sports Club for, for almost 30 years. And you look at a cricket ground, um, even, even that cricket ground in particular, it's colonial architecture. It was, it was part of, of the, you know, Salisbury as it, as it was. It was part of the colonial infrastructure, but that very infrastructure became the site at which um, colonialism was dismantled. Um, the, 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 these, 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 this infrastructure and these sites of, of control and oppression are the very sites 
where these things can be challenged. Um, and that's that's why cricket is so interesting to me because it's it's obviously this this you know very or has this this um, reputation of being a state kind of boring English sport that was spread through colonialism and obviously that's true but um, it's it's burst out of those boundaries and um, in 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 the very act of being used for those things provided the space for. Um, challenging colonialism, for challenging the oppression. Um, and, and even within cricket, you know, the, people talk of this thing, the spirit of cricket, these ethics, the um, ideas of fairness, fair play, meritocracy, and things like that. Um, and when the sport in its past has failed to live up to these ideals, and this is something CLR James knew very well, um, that becomes the very way to attack these structures, to interrogate them and, and to turn them into something quite different to, to what they once were. And that's certainly the case in Zimbabwe. Zimbabwean cricket is um, in many ways unrecognizable from, from the, the thing it was um, at independence. That's fascinating. And I think it, it speaks to the, the underlying sort of universalist character of sport insofar as it is anything that anyone can claim ownership over. And in many ways, the story of Trevor Madondo that you told was of this young lad who felt he had ownership of this game insofar as he didn't need to fulfill any expectation that anyone had of him, how he ought to play the game, how he ought to have his career unfold, he was going to do it at his own way, at his own pace, for better or worse. You, you, mm. you, you, you're very clear to mention that part of the, the bad that happens in his life is out of his own agency. But the important part of that is that he has agency to, to live out his career in the way that he wants to and is responsible for both the good and the bad. And in many ways, that is the way in which uh, through his individual life, uh, he he does a lot to 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 undo the 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 colonial kind of baggage of of a game like cricket. Hmm. Yeah, and there's so much going on in Trevor's story. That's the other thing that attracted it um, to me. It's uh, you know there's there's um, questions of 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 race, questions of uh, masculinity and and representations of masculinity. Um, you know, even uh, the, the the role of of uh, alcohol and alcohol abuse in Zimbabwean society across the board, um, and and yeah, as you mentioned, Trevor Trevor's story is, you know, he he did it his his own way, um, and it's it's a beautiful story, but also quite a tra a tragic story in in many ways, um, and that for me makes it all the more. Um, a Zimbabwean story, uniquely a uniquely Zimbabwean story, and and one that um, needed definitely needed to be told. And since since Trevor's time, you you conclude by mentioning all of these stars that sort of rise up, and mm -hmm. it seems like Zimbabwean cr cricket uh, before and during Trevor's time still had transformation issues. There were racial tensions during the period of sweeping change that 
Robin Bogabe brought to the country in the early 2000s. And you could still feel that this was very much a sport that was in formation and trying to navigate uh, a lot of these political issues. And then after Trevor's time, certainly there's this flood of, of new uh, black talent that, that emerges. And, and since then, what has, you've mentioned the sport is unrecognizable from 30 years ago, but what are the things that you think are, are, are continuous that still need to change? You've written as well about how uh, the sport itself needs to change how it operates, give more power to players to decide their trade and their fate. Um, so what still needs to change and, and what are the things that you think led to the sport changing for the better in Zimbabwe in a way, for example, that it hasn't in South Africa? Gosh, that's a good question. Um, I think that one of the ways in which um, I think you know Zimbabwean cricket has achieved um, total total transformation um, in the sense that um, there's there, no one no one questions the the merits of of any player on the current team. Players are, are picked absolutely by um, uh, by merit and and the team is overwhelmingly a, a, a black team and as it should be this is you know Zimbabwe is a black overwhelmingly majority black country um, so that that's I think that's that's a big success that wasn't achieved uh, easily it's, it's not to say that there that there weren't hurdles to to, to get to that place um, the problem now that I think Zimbabwe is facing is not so much one of uh, um the tr issues of, of of transformation but of the the team's place within this speaks to sport more generally and especially the the teams that are not um or not that wealthy um you know cricket's place in a um a global neoliberal Order, you know, cricket has, you know, I talk, I talk about Zimbabwean cricket having been unrecognizable. Cricket in itself is unrecognizable from what it was even even 15 years ago. It's been um, completely commercialized, um, commodified. There are new forms of the game coming out, um, which have their own merits as as you know, sporting endeavors, but they also are tailored to um, kind of market forces, television audiences, um, advertisers. Um, you know, the, the, the locus of power in, in world cricket has moved definitively away from England and, and to India, which has the biggest audience, the most money in, in the game. So I look at Zimbabwean cricket today, and um, while, yes, there, 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 there are successes, and, and then there are challenges that remain on the home front as well, um, you know, as in many, as in many sports and in many other cricketing nations, um, institutional and administrative challenges. But but the big one is the um, the inequality of the global cricket system now, and what it means for smaller teams like Zimbabwe. Because Zimbabwe is in a very interesting place in world cricket. Technically, a full member. Um, you know, one of the top twelve cricketing nations. They have they have a, a, a place at the table, at the ICC table, if you can put it that way. Um, 
but in terms of um, their finances um, and infrastructure are much closer to what um, cricket is uh, what is called or called the associate nations in cricket, i.e. the smaller cricketing countries, um, not your England, Australia, your India, more like um, teams like Netherlands, Scotland, Kenya, Namibia, Uganda. Um, and what you find in cricket these days is a is a is a concentration of of, of wealth and the um, abrogation of of duty towards player welfare um, and and you know equity and fairness within the game. Uh, cricket has become a a completely a slave to the market, if I can put it put it that way. It's been completely commodified. So, so that is for me the 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 the, the biggest challenge that Zimbabwe and teams like um, Zimbabwe are, are currently facing: how to how to navigate um, these things, um, and yeah, how to you know how to how to look after their players. Um, Zimbabwe is also. Now, this is one of the challenges on the home front. One of the few countries that doesn't have a players' union, um, which is which is obviously not ideal, um, because unions look after player welfare. They give players um, a voice and a power. A couple of years ago, the 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 chairman of the ZC board was asked why uh, they, why there wasn't a players' union, and um, his response. Uh, I think was quite telling, and he said, "Well, we don't mind the idea of a players' union, but we don't want uh, we don't want it to be a um, you know a political entity," which made me smile because, um, as as I understand unions, that's that's essentially what a union is is a is a political identity mm-hmm. that represents the rights of the players and champions uh, player power or worker power. If you can think of the players as workers, they are ununionized workers. Um, so yeah, that's the, these are these are some of the the issues that remain. Um, but in terms of the transformation of the game, uh, Zimbabwe is in is in a good place. I, I don't think any Zimbabwean fan would tell you that there is uh, any sort of um, issues with regards to integration. You know, mm-hmm. uh, just recently we saw in the, in the Pakistan Super League. One of the best players in, the, in that league is, is a young Zimbabwean, a young fast bowler called Blessing Muzarabani, um, a youngster who's come from uh, desperately poor circumstances, even in the context of Zimbabwe. Um, but, but, but he is able to um, access the structures and you know, get, become part of the game and, and build his career. There's, no, there's nothing to stop... Um, it's not an economic issue, you know. And I mean, maybe maybe I'll ask this as a as a final question. Um, what you've identified, as you said correctly, is a trend that is increasingly being noticed across all sports. This further near liberalizing of the game and tailor, tailoring sports towards markets and capital interests, uh, but. Some people make the argument on the other end, which is to say, well, cricket is this game that, well, let's be honest, it's extremely boring. Nobody has the time to camp out in a chair for days on end 
watching the grind of test cricket and it's great if it's shortened for uh, restrictions to 20 overs and it's great that these players can have these opportunities to play in these uh, for these clubs in India and these clubs in Pakistan uh, and it's great for their own career advancement and it's great to popularize cricket as a sport so that it breaks beyond the 12 nations of the ICC and so on and so on. So I'm curious as to what you would say in the spirit of CLR James perhaps making the case for uh, a format which is much more, I guess, philosophically minded, to put it that way, that is uh, away from the, the current trends that you are pointing out. And can that format of the game be salvaged or is it too far gone now? Uh, or is there still a chance? And if so, what needs to be done in order to to make cricket um, great again? Well, I mean, just for, for starters, you say it, it grinds on for a week and it's desperately boring, but you just described my ideal week. Um, <laughs> I could, I could, I could, I love, I love a good long grinding cricket match it's um it's like a it's like a long it's like a it's like a 600 page russian novel you know <laughs> deep and it's dense <laughs> and it's and it's going to leave you possibly with with more questions than answers at the end <laughs> um and no and, and maybe no one will even win and that's fine um no but to, to answer your question you look honestly for me the the problem is not um cricket's format it's not it's not whether we have test cricket, which lasts five days, or one day cricket, or T20 cricket, which only lasts three hours. Um, they're all, there's, there's nothing wrong in, in and of themselves. The, the, the problem with me is, is that, is, is where the bottom line is. The bottom line, if the bottom line is, is profit and money, um, which it, which it currently is. And, and that, even, even as they say that, I don't, I don't want to make it sound like, you know, there, there are good people at the ICC doing really good work, um, as there are in many organizations, but the problems are at, at, at the very top and the decision makers and, and the kind of the broad policies that that um, that push these, these things along. So the problem is not T20 cricket. T20 cricket is fun. Uh, I love T20 cricket as well. And, and it is, you know, it's, it's, it, it does make cricket more accessible. Um, uh, you know, a lot of cricket's um, resurgence in Africa, in places like Ghana and Nigeria, um, and it's, and you know, in Uganda um, and Kenya has been down to um, these, these new cricket formats, which make, um, which make it slightly more cost-effective um, and which do broaden the game. That's a great thing. That's a great thing and it's, and it's to be celebrated, um, but money can't be the bottom line. It's you know profit can't be the bottom line, um, and I and I mentioned a couple of African cricket teams there, um, and honestly I think that African cricket outside of Zimbabwe and outside of South Africa um, is is providing a model for the rest of the world. Recently there was a um, a T20 tournament in in Rwanda, the uh, Kwibuka T20 um, tournament with women's teams from from all over Africa. Um, and this, and, and at stage at one of the most beautiful um, cricket grounds in the world, Rwanda has um, 
really some great facilities. Um, but th this tournament was uh, it was streamed on YouTube, um, and uh, it, it you know it fans from around the world uh, could watch the game if they want to. But most importantly, uh, people in Africa could could watch the game and watch. Um, teams from their home countries coming together just to play the sport. Um, and, you know, it's those, those players, uh, they get, they get paid to play there and, and obviously they need to, but that tournament didn't happen because someone was going to make a lot of money out of it. That tournament happened because those, those countries wanted to get together and get their teams playing together and, you know, um, Builds uh, so solidarity and unity in their in their cricket structures, and it, and it was a, a great achievement. And I think those sorts of things really provide a model for um, where African cricket can go, and where countries like um, Zimbabwe and most especially South Africa can play a leading role in in these sorts of things. Why don't we have um, an African Cup of Nations for cricket? Why don't we have an African T20 Cup even? Um, uh, we need we need these sorts of things um, going forward. Liam, thank you so much. I hope South Africa's cricket uh, community rises up to your challenge. It doesn't look like things at Cricket South Africa are going too well. It seems like it's changing, but you know, I I don't pay close attention, so we'll see. Yeah. But uh, I think well, you've, I, you've... go ahead. If yeah, I, go if, ahead. I, if I may. Um... One of the people who who's just coming to CSA, Lawson Naidu, is he's a he's a he's a really good guy. He's I I know um, some of his family from back in uh, Zimbabwe actually, uh, good struggle family. And uh, Lawson himself is a, is a lovely human being. If anyone can push CSA in in that direction, I think he can. Yeah, we. I, I, I'm going to put my trust in Lawson. I know uh, uh, Stephen Budland is another person who's come on and he's a reputable South African advocate who I think is a reliable and trustworthy person. So let's hope the tide is turning and your dream can come true. Uh, in the meantime, I'll read CLR James's book and I'll see what yes. all the fuck is about. Uh, but, but Liam, thank you so much for, for coming onto the show and to Yulandri Apasami, who is our other fellow, uh, both Yulendri and Liam, uh, our fellows, We there are eight other fellows. Please go onto the website and check out their work. Do expect more work from them. We've gotten a teaser about what some of that work might be, and we're all very excited to see it published and to engage with it. So we hopefully will have the opportunity to profile other fellows, uh, but until then, Keep your eyes peeled to see what they get up to. So thanks once again to Yulendri and Liam. And thanks, as always, to my wonderful producer, Antoinette Engel. A reminder to like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I'll see you next week.